Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into God's word here. Father, we ask that, uh, that you guide us here as we dive into your word. Uh, the, the actions and words of Jesus are powerful in this text, and I pray, God, that you would um, put a spotlight on our own lives, um, how we uh, can shore up the areas in our life to be more like Jesus as your church. Uh, God, we are to be the hands, feet, and mouth of Jesus to the community in which we live. We are to serve them, speak hope and life to them, uh, and tell them about you. And I pray, God, that you would help us uh, as we look through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today we are jumping a little bit here. Okay, I've told you in the, our study of Matthew, we're kind of taking uh, what almost we'll call episodes in Jesus' life, right? So we're jumping from chapter 4 last week all the way to chapter 8. Um, and we're focusing in on uh, Jesus' interaction in the Gospel of Matthew, his interaction with people. And through this story that we'll see today, he will show us what living for him and his kingdom kind of looks like. Uh, we'll look at what, what value in people looks like. And in doing all of this, we'll begin to lay the foundation pieces for what will happen in the book of Acts, which is planting churches and starting churches. And we see Jesus kind of lay out how we are to live. So we're jumping over what's been typically called the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with the Bible, you may have heard that term. Matthew 5 through 7 is, uh, is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we taught it this past year in, in BI um, and the contents of that. But I, I want to give you kind of the overview of what Jesus was talking about. In Matthew 5 through 7, it has been called the, the greatest sermon, the greatest lecture, uh, the greatest talk, the greatest speech, whatever word you want to use there, in the history of the world by both critics and, and those who love Jesus as well, right? They would all, historians would tell you that this is maybe some of the best words ever written or ever spoken. And so, um, in essence, what we find in the content of that letter, now this may be new for you, may not be the way you would describe it, but in essence, it's Jesus calling people to follow him and what I'll say is being a rebel. Now, that maybe never connected that with the Sermon on the Mount before, if you're familiar with the content. But I know, I know it sounds strange. But when you consider by definition, I looked this up, a rebel is, quote, someone who rises in opposition to the establishment. One who goes against the culture. Um, who bucks the cultural norms of the day. Right? Then a, re a rebel is a perfect description of the content of what Jesus actually describes. You see, when we live in a culture when everyone loves themselves more than others, prioritizes their own personal comfort and safety over the good of others, and seeks to make a name for themselves by stepping over others, then living like that is not rebellion, is it? That's called conformity, okay? That's going with the flow of the culture. To rebel is to go against the cultural norms. And so we're not called to conform to the world, right? We're not called to that. We're called to follow Jesus. And if you go back and read Matthew 5 through 7, you will find Jesus challenging his followers to go against the grain of the culture, to put aside what they think they know, right, is right, um, and, or what is popular, and follow him. That's why you'll hear him say things, and maybe this is familiar to you, you'll hear him say things like, you heard it said, but what? I say to you, right? Okay, I know you think this is the way you're supposed to live. I know you think this is what God expects of you, but let me tell you what actually that really means. That's why he'll, he'll, he'll say to give to those in need, but make no attempt basically of getting any credit for it yourself. That's why he'll say things like love your enemies. That's why he'll say things like don't judge others and, and get the log out of your own eye before you try to get that speck of dirt out of your neighbor's eye. Those are all very 
counterintuitive to what they understood how you treat people. The whole idea of rebelling against the culture and living differently is summed up in Jesus' whole statement of where he calls us to be salt of the earth, a city on a hill, a light, light of the world, right? That those are all uh, counterintuitive. And so the entire gospel of Matthew will, will teach us as followers of Jesus, we are to stand out. We are to rebel in how we see and treat people differently than the world sees and treats people. And so the, the gospel of Matthew itself culminates in a call to love people, to follow Jesus and seeking to make him known to people and take what we see Jesus do and say, right? And, and implement that in how we, again, see and treat people. Listen to his final marching orders. This is how the gospel of Matthew will end. It says in verse, uh, chapter 28, sorry, verse 19, Jesus tells his followers to go, go therefore and make disciples. Get out there where people are and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You say, so did, um, did Jesus, I mean, did he just talk a good game? I mean, did he live the things that he, he called us to do in Matthew 5 through 7? Did he just give some words and expect his followers to just go do those things? What does this living in rebellion to the cultural norm look like? What does making disciples, as Jesus calls us to do, what does that look like? And as soon as Jesus drops words, his last words in the sermon here, and, and shockwaves really reverberate through the crowds, because if you look down at the end of chapter 7, it says the crowds were astonished, right? He was teaching with one authority, like this is different than what we've heard before. As soon as he did that, we see Jesus come down from the mountain, and he answers our questions. He, he lives that what he just taught. And what he does sends more shockwaves through the crowds than what he had just said, okay? What he does in chapter eight here sends more shockwaves through the crowd than the things he had just said to them from the mountaintop. The people are not going to like what Jesus does because he's not gonna fit the, the mold, the cultural mold that they want him to fit into, right? They had their own ideas, their own agendas for what they wanted Jesus to be. They saw a guy as we looked at chapter four last week, who could do miracles. And they're thinking to themselves, okay, this is perfect guy to get these Romans off our back, get them off our land, right? Let's get them out of here. Jesus, you're great. Whatever you want to say is great, but let's use that power to get rid of those Romans. And yet they wanted a conquering king, right? They didn't want a suffering servant. They wanted political change. They didn't want heart change. They wanted a lover of power, not a lover of people, and one day Jesus will return. He will be a conquering king when he returns. And if you just read the end of the Bible, you'll see that. But right now he is a suffering servant, as Isaiah calls, in which at the end of our passage today, he quotes from here in Isaiah 53. He's going to come back as, as that. But right now he's a suffering servant, calling us to be suffering servants as we follow him. And so today we're going to follow Jesus down the mountain of teaching to the valley of suffering people, Okay. So we're going to come down the mountain, we're going to see him follow and come down, and we're going to be astonished at the people that he actually serves, the people that he actually reaches out to, the way, and he's going to make some enemies in the process, because they're not going to like it, right, the people that he, he talks to. So let's follow him down the mountain, let's see what this rebellion looks like, what following him looks like, going against the culture. And here's what we're going to see. Jesus is personal, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that first one, okay, so don't be, you look at your clock after we're done with point one, okay, a lot of time on the first one. Jesus is personal. Jesus is powerful, and the last one may sound strange to you, but we'll get there. Jesus is penetrable, okay? 
Number one, Jesus is personal. First four verses, we read here in verse one, when he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds, it says, followed him. So again, Jesus just got done preaching the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And he's called people to follow him exclusively. And as soon as he walks down to the base of the mountain, he is, he is surrounded by people. Right? He's surrounded the, like my dog Dodger surrounds treats. Right? It's like, they're, all, they're all over him. They're all around him everywhere. And, and he, as he's surrounded, some of these people now, there's a lots of opinions going on about Jesus. Some, they're still not quite sure who he is or what he's really talking about, but they're in for the free show. Right? It's like, I've seen this guy do miracles and his free health care. I mean, this is great. He heals all my diseases. This is wonderful. I think we'll follow along a little bit with him um, because we're interested in that part. There are others who feel slighted by what Jesus just said. Right? They feel upset. They feel like he's targeting them. And as we'll find out, he actually, he kind of is. Um, he says some pretty strong things to them. But there's, a, there's another group of people that are just going, wow, or they're astonished. There's something special and unique about this Jesus. We've known him as a carpenter's son, right? But this is different. He speaks differently than anyone we've ever heard before. And so you can imagine there's, there's a lot of questions in the crowd, there's a lot of intrigue, as well as a lot of accusations and some bones that people want to pick with Jesus, right? So all of this, they're all surrounding him. It's packed place. The energy is high, right? It's like the green flag's about to drop at the, at the race, okay? And everyone's in anticipation, and look what happens, verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, if you've read any of the Gospels before, you'll realize that it's pretty common that people feel the freedom to come up to Jesus. There was something about him that people felt the freedom to come up to him and to talk to him. And so we, we find that it's been happening to him every day since he started his public ministry, as we saw back in chapter 4. But this person now is a leper. And this person is not someone Jesus should give the time of day to according to the culture, Okay. Shouldn't give him a time of day. He's not worth your attention, Jesus, right? Um, there are more important people to be talking to. You can imagine people are like, Jesus, you only have 24 hours like we do. I and mean, there's a some, there's some lot more important people to be talking to right now besides this guy. This guy's a nobody. This guy is rejected by friends, by family, really rejected by the entire population of humanity. He was in bad shape. Consider for a moment, I want, to, I want to dive into this for a minute so you understand what this guy's life is like for a minute. Okay? Consider his physical condition for a moment. Leprosy was a dreaded skin disease. One, one, once one had the disease, they would slowly begin to lose feeling in parts of their bodies as their nervous system was attacked. Hair would begin to fall out from their head and their eyebrows. The eyes would, would many times start to lock up so that they can, they can only see straight ahead. Their eyeballs kind of stop, stop moving. It would make its way to the muscles um, that, where they would start to decay, making the person very frail. Also, the tendons in their, in their hands uh, would begin to, to kind of uh, bend like claws. They kind of lock in. So they're kind of walking around with their kind of fingers bent like this. Uh, the disease also would, would attack their vocal cords, causing them to be hoarse. Uh, and every breath they took would involve some kind of wheezing, you know, like that. Every time they would speak, that's the sound that they would make every time they talked. Add to all of this the boils that would start to develop all over their kind of body. 
eventually kind of oozing, giving off a pretty wretched smell as well. So no one wanted to be near them because of the smell of them. I mean, it was like Jesus walked off the mountain and onto the set of Walking Dead, basically. Okay, that's kind of what, that's what he's witnessing and what is happening right now with this person. This leper would live in this condition for another 10, even up to possibly 30 years in this condition. Eventually suffer mental decay, fall into a coma, and die. That's, that's this person's condition. Now consider the physical is only part of it. Consider the social side of this. They, as lepers, were considered outcasts, primarily because no one wanted to contract the disease, right? So they're like, get away from us. We don't want you anywhere close to us. Uh, matter of fact, Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, not a, not a Christian, but he was a Jewish historian living during the time of the Bible. He recorded some of the history of things that were happening. And he said this, he says, quote, uh, lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead people. That's how the culture looked at them. They were basically dead people. When they were diagnosed, they were banished from society. In some cases, if a person, I read some of this in the, in the history books, I mean, some people caught the disease, the, the religious leaders would bring them into the temple, right when they got it, they would read the burial rites over them and then banish them out of society. You're dead, right? This, imagine what this is like for this person. And since there was no cure for the condition, the only solution was quarantine. Does that sound familiar to us? Okay, quarantine, you know what this is like. Maybe you know that experience. You also know, intuitively, the loneliness that comes along with that, right? The isolation from people. Imagine living like that for 10 to 30 years, and no one acknowledges you even exist. They were not allowed to live in the towns or villages or neighborhoods of people. They had to remain outside residential areas. The other tragic result of this is they were cut off from not just social life, but also religious life. They couldn't come and be part of worship at the temple uh, the only provision they had, um, I found this, there's only one provision. They could come into almost like the basement of the temple, as it were, and they could come underground into this little thing called a, um, a match, match itza. Match itza, that's how they say it. And it was a 10-foot high, 6-foot wide room. It's not very big. Uh, where they would gather with other lepers where they could kind of hear, okay, the, the, the word being read upstairs, but they couldn't see anything. To give you perspective on how big that is, Think about that little elevator over here near door five, the one it looks like I thought that junior hires hand cranked that thing to move it. You know, it's, it's like it, it takes 10 years to get up it. If you've ever been in that thing, you know what I'm talking about. The size of that is the size of the room they would have to go into. And they would pack in like sardines in this little tiny space to be able to just maybe to kind of hear a, a very faint sound of the word of God being read. Now, when a leper would actually venture out into public, bravely venture out into public, they had strict rules they had to follow. When they were within earshot of people, they had to constantly yell out, unclean, unclean, as loud as they could, so that people could hear it and then watch them scatter and run. Because no one, they had, by law, had to make sure everyone knew who they were, what their problem was, and watch everybody. Can you imagine what that felt like, just to watch people run every time you got near people? Um, it was illegal for a leper to greet people or for people to greet a leper. They also had to keep at least, get this now, this is interesting, had to keep at least six feet distance from people. But it was worse then than it is now because if the wind was blowing that day, the rule was you had, to, you had to keep 120 feet away because they were afraid the wind would carry the disease closer. It's the distance, um, sorry, 90 feet. It's the distance between like home plate and first base, basically. They had to keep that much distance with any other person when a wind was blowing. I read some history. One rabbi 
Uh, they, they were, if you know who they were, they were kind of the religious teachers in Judaism of the day, or teachers of the Bible, were recorded as saying, one said he wouldn't even eat an egg that was bought on a, at a market where a leper happened to pass by, right? Another one said that uh, he boasted about flinging stones at lepers to keep them away. Another rabbi, another religious teacher hid themselves. Others said they talked about they took off running and sprinting whenever they saw one uh, around. Now, imagine the scene. Let's go back to the story. Imagine the scene now. Jesus, who many consider to be what now? And many of them consider him to probably be a rabbi, right? A religious teacher of the day. That's what they're, they're trying to understand about who he is. He walks down from the mountain. The area, again, is packed with fans and spectators and detractors, and everyone wants Jesus' attention. Everyone wants Jesus' autograph, as it were, right? They want to take the selfie with Jesus. They, they want to be close to him. Everyone's packed into that scenario and scene. And here it comes. You start to see the commotion in the crowd starts to die down. You hear rumblings of whispers and gasps. And slowly you begin to see the crowd start to kind of part as if Moses just showed up, right? It's like, they divide out, put their hands over their mouths, you know. Um, This poor leper comes hobbling along. He approaches Jesus and it says he falls down on his knees. You can imagine people start to heckle him. You can imagine some begin to pick up stones because that's what their religious leaders had taught them to do, to to shoo him away as if he was a, 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 a fly, They probably expect Jesus to join in on this, right? This is what a religious leader should do to a leper to get him away. But notice Jesus doesn't pick up a rock. He doesn't take a step back. He doesn't crinkle up his nose in disgust or pinch his nose from the smell of this person. He doesn't shake his head even and go, oh, man, you poor guy. Like, it's really not good to be you, I guess, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, he, he, he looks at him. Can you imagine? He looked at him first. (laughs) <laughs> this guy hadn't had anybody look at him in years. He looks at him. He listens to him, right? He treats him as an image bearer of God that no one else even saw him like that. I mean, this leper has probably heard rumors of he- Jesus' healing ministry, right? It's, it's been happening now for a, for a few months. He believes that he has power to heal him, but he probably is uncertain if would Jesus heal someone like him? No one's done that yet. No one's healed a leper yet. Um, I mean, who, who would be interested? Think about the political side of this. Who was interested in healing a leper? What social, economic, or even religious advantage would Jesus have by healing a leper? He's a nobody, right? Um, understand also that in that culture, just being near a leper meant social, economic, and religious disaster. And no doubt people are probably warning Jesus, Jesus, you need to back up, as if he cared what they said, Right? And so as, as unclean, broken, and washed up as this leper feels, he knows there's something about Jesus that makes him bold enough to approach him. He doesn't even, do you notice in the text? It's so important to just look at it. That's why we believe every word of God, every word of God is inspired. Notice in the text that he doesn't even make a request. Do you see that in the text? Does he ask Jesus to do something? <laughs> if you are willing you are able to make me clean is the literal language. If you are willing, you are able to make me clean. He doesn't ask to be. He just says, I know you're able to. <laughs> doesn't even ask. Doesn't feel, probably feel like he should. It's a statement of faith, right? It's not a statement of entitlement. And notice he talks about being also made clean rather than being healed. You're able to make me clean. You would think he would say you're able to heal me. He doesn't say that. You're able to make me clean. 
it's so much more than the physical side for him, right? It's the social and spiritual ailment that he feels. He wants to be restored back to society again. He wants to be restored to God. He wants to be part of community. He wants to connect with people. You see, that's all in his language. Look at verse 3. <laughs> Jesus stretched out his hand. What did he do? He touched him. I just would love to have been there to see this. Touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now think with me. I always say, think about what could have happened, right? What, what, could, what could have happened here? Think about what Jesus could have done. He could have gone with the crowd's response and again, rid himself of this character. He could have expressed his sympathy for this guy and been like, you know, I'm sorry, bud. It's, life's not fair, you know. Um, just keep calm and carry on type, type mantra thing. He could have had compassion on his condition and he could have done the, this will date me a little bit here, but um, some of you remember this. He could have done the I dream of Jeannie head nod, right? And just kind of healed him. The Star Wars, I think this is how they do it in Star Wars. I've never seen it. The, you know, the wave of the hand thing, you know? You didn't see Star Wars. No, I don't care. I don't like Star Wars. Um, but, you know, the wave of the hand thing, and then boom, his leprosy is gone. He could have done all those kinds of things, but he doesn't. Notice what he does. He gets close to him, and he leans in, and with the crowd, like, gasping, holding in their breath, he, he touches him. And I bet he touched him right where the leprosy was. <laughs> right where it was. Everyone was expecting Jesus' hand now. They expected his hand to be filled with a stone. Instead, it was filled with empathy and compassion. He saw this man as an image bearer of God, not a discarded piece of trash that everyone else saw. Jesus was rebelling against the cultural norms of the day for the sake of the dignity, hope, and healing of this leper. And he's literally living out the Sermon on the Mount here. He's literally doing everything he just told them to do. <laughs> Jesus, and, and when Jesus said, come to me in the Gospels, when he says in later Matthew, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he meant that. He still means that today. It's the same invitation. I want you to imagine for a moment being this leper. You haven't felt the touch of another human being in probably years. It's likely that people haven't even looked you in the eyes or said a word to you other than words of disgust for years. You used to have friends. You used to have family. You used to have people who even knew your name. And now you wonder if anybody on the planet even knows what your name is. Here's Jesus. He's not just anyone now, okay? He's not just anyone. He's very popular at this moment. Maybe the most popular guy on the planet at this moment in history. Everyone wants to be near him. Everyone wants to be close to him. And he decides to go to you. He decides to touch you. Think about that. You can imagine the crowds now. They're, they're not too happy with this. They probably begin to call Jesus unclean now that he touches the leper. Others start to, to create space as if they think they're going to contract, contract the disease in many ways, Jesus touching this leper became him, right? He, he jumped into his life. He joined him in his situation. He identified with him. We call this, he showed solidarity with him. And when Jesus touched the leper, his touch didn't contaminate him. Rather, his touch cured the leper. Exact opposite of what everyone else thought was going to happen. It's a spectacular demonstration of what Jesus' presence does in respect to human sin. Jesus didn't become sinful by becoming one of us. Rather, he made it possible to be cleansed from sin by his contact. And I love, again, I love just the simplicity of Jesus' statement here. In the Greek language, which is the original language of the text here, um, it was just two Greek words. Yes, clean. <laughs> That's it. That's the only two words Jesus said to him. Yes, clean. 
This shows his compassion and his power, right? He acknowledges him. He answers a question that God didn't even ask, and he shows his power by making him clean. And notice that immediately it says he was cleansed. And not just healed, but cleansed, restored back to society. The look, compassion, service of Jesus transformed this guy. His whole posture began to... Can you imagine how different it made this man? The light of his eyes lighting up. And Proverbs 15, 30 says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. That's what happened to this guy. His eyes light up, his bones feel new, like he's, he's a whole new man. My friends, God is personal, and that is important for us to know today. In a day of wearing face masks, keeping socially distanced from one another, where seemingly every business seemingly markets the, the contactless service, right? We, we won't even touch you. We won't even get close to you. We won't even acknowledge you, but we'll serve you kind of thing, which I understand if you're owning a business. I'm not criticizing you for that. I'm just saying that's the culture we live in, right? Keep your distance. Don't get close. Don't acknowledge. We need to know that Jesus is personal. Even if no one knows your name, he does. He doesn't back away from you. He moves towards you, and he sees you. And this was radical, for the time, especially when they begin to understand Jesus being God, because their ideas of gods in their culture was nothing like this. They were supposed to be high and mighty, barking out orders, maybe something like the Sermon on the Mount, okay, you're going to preach at us, good, and then leave, not come down from the mountain and be among us. You're supposed to keep your distance from humanity according to what they understood, and here we have Jesus, who was clearly calling himself God in his previous sermon, immediately step off the mountain and touch the lowest of the low. He be God became man and did not stand at arm's length to sinners. He didn't run through the crowds, you know, as if he was an NFL, you know, run, running back and was stiff arming the competition, right? He didn't push him away. He wasn't Captain America with a shield, you know, blasting people away from him. He was close to them. And he didn't pack up his bags at the end of every day and commute back to heaven and was real safe and comfortable and then come back down to preach some sermons and go back. He stayed. He slept under the stars. He lived with people. And by the way, we'll look at this later. He lived with disciples that were outcasts of society too. He lived among us. He touched us. He saw us. That's what I mean when I say Jesus was a rebel. It was different than anything they ever thought God was supposed to be. And this is not how they imagined it to be. Again, Jesus was and is a rebel. And this approach to people, this compassion, this tenderness is how he intends to reach you and how to reach others through you with the gospel. Do you see people like Jesus sees people, right? Do you treat people as Jesus treats people? This is him implementing the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse four. One quick note before we move on to the next point. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests, offer a gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, why does Jesus tell him to go to a priest? Because the leper, remember, what, was, what did he want? He wanted to be cleansed, not just healed, cleansed. This was the official way, almost a stamp of approval, to restore him back to society. It was like uh, going to the doctor as an athlete, getting the clean bill of health to be able to go back and join the team. Okay? That's the idea of what's happening, why he tells him to go to this priest. The guy's now able to play in society again. He's able to connect with people again by getting this approval. Now, why did Jesus tell him not to tell people? That's always a strange one for people. Like, why is Jesus like, shh, don't tell anybody? <laughs> Jesus didn't want people to get the idea that he was just some miracle worker, right? That's what they wanted. It wasn't just that. Jesus wasn't doing this to put on a show. 
right? This wasn't like, hey, look what I can do kind of thing. I've told you this before. If he wanted to do that, he could have done much more spectacular, you know, fly around the Sea of Galilee, shoot fireballs from his sleeves. He could have done a lot of things that were like, whoa, look at him. This was different, right? He's doing this for the sake of this man. He's not putting on a show. He wasn't doing it for some applause or notches on his belt. He was doing this to show us what it looks like to follow him and rebel against the culture, to be personal and to care for the outcast and the marginalized. So number one, Jesus is personal. Number two, Jesus is powerful. The story gets even more interesting. Verse five, he entered Capernaum. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. All right, so we got to do some work again. We got to who's this guy and what's his situation. So enter stage left here, okay, a centurion. Now, he's not only a Gentile. He said, what's that? A non-Jewish person in that culture. Not only a Gentile, meaning not Jewish, but he was a Roman. Remember we talked about earlier with the Romans? They didn't, they didn't like the Romans. He's not only a Roman. He's a, a centurion. He's a commander of 100 Roman troops. Okay, so he's, he's in, like, not very popular at this time. This did not make him a very popular guy at the time. He would give, in our culture, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, and these guys run for their money as the like, most hated person in the country. Like, I mean, he, they did not like this guy. And yet here he is approaching Jesus, a Jewish man, a perceived rabbi among the people, and you can see people start to snarl. <laughs> like, oh, okay, there's one thing with the leper. It's another thing with the, why are you giving this guy the time of day? So it says, um, verse 6, Lord, he calls him Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. <laughs> it's like, try to understand. This is crazy. This centurion, a Roman general, has a servant. What is that? One of his soldiers who's in bad shape. He's paralyzed. Now, we don't know why he's paralyzed, but we can guess it's probably from active duty. Right? That's, that's his job. That's what he does. He's a soldier. Probably serving Rome. And one of the main things Rome was doing was stomping out a lot of unrest among the Jewish people. Thus, you can imagine, the Jewish crowd all around him could care less about one of his Roman soldiers being paralyzed. As a matter of fact, they may even be glad about that. that wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a shocking response from them to be glad about this. Well, he's, he, he got injured trying to get rid of us, right? Trying to hurt us, so it's, he deserves it. It wouldn't be shocking from them. It also wouldn't be shocking if the Roman general treated him that way. Again, understand history here. Rome was infamous for its lack of care for its soldiers. Normally, if, if, if a soldier in a group of 100, if one of them got injured, they just left them behind to die. They didn't stop to take care of them. They didn't care about that. Um, they were viewed as an object, not a person. They were a tool in the Roman kind of power system. It was said of Rome, one, one historian said this, quote, Rome had beasts, weapons, and soldiers. The only difference between the beasts, the weapons, and the soldiers was that the soldiers could speak. That, that's how they viewed them as people, okay? So it wouldn't be shocking if the crowd said, good, good for him, I'm glad he's paralyzed, I hope he dies, right? It wouldn't be shocking if the Roman general said that. But here we have this, this Roman general, the centurion, actually cares about one of his guys, his soldiers. He even adds, notice the language, he's suffering terribly. What does that mean? What does that tell us? That means he's personally involved here. He's gone to visit him. He's heard from him. He, he knows his condition. He sees that he's suffering terribly. He's not just, oh, I heard he got paralyzed. I've seen him. He's suffering terribly. He's gotten close to him. He knows his suffering well. And notice Jesus' response. This is a Gentile, a hated Roman commander. Jesus could have ignored him and got a lot of applause, won a lot of points from the crowd, right? 
He could have even, he could have even whispered to this guy, right? Hey, um, won't you come back and see me later tonight? I've got a meeting with this guy named Nicodemus. I got an appointment open right after him. You can meet up with me after that by the fire, right? And you could, you know, hey, let's just do this later. This is too much. It's, this is too political right now. Let's not do this right here. He could have winked at him, maybe whispered, hey, it's all right. I got this. I got this. It's okay. I'll heal him from here just, just between me and you. He could have done that. Instead, it says in the text, without a request now, Jesus agrees to go to the soldier. The language literally means, I will come myself, Jesus said. And keep in mind, there's again no question here. The centurion just shares the condition of the soldier. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask him to come. Jesus offers to come. You say, well, that's not a big deal. Oh, it is a huge deal, okay? The only way Jesus is going to go to the soldier is if he actually enters into his home. Remember, what's a soldier? He is paralyzed. He's not walking out. Jesus is going to have to go to him in his house. That would be a perceived Jewish rabbi of the time entering the home of a hated Roman Gentile, which was forbidden under Jewish law. You cannot do that. Again, what I mean by Jesus being a rebel, right? He's going against the cultural norms of the day. And this is rebellious. And Jesus' popularity meter, again, is going down fast. He was supposed to rid them of the Roman people, not heal them, <laughs> okay? It's like, this is just one less, Jesus, let him go. Let's, let's get rid of some more of them. Oh, no, let's go heal them. Look at verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy. <laughs> I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man, I'm a man of authority. The soldier's under me. I, I say to one, go, and he goes. No one come, he comes. Servant, do this, and he does it. He's like, I'm, I know how this works. Why does the centurion object to Jesus coming? Well, Part of it's because he probably understands that for, Jew, for Jesus to enter a Gentile home will cause a lot of back, backlash for him. He's been around Jewish people long enough as this centurion over, obviously he's over the area, he's here. He's been around long enough to know that's how it works. It even made one unclean to enter a Jewish home, right? So he's probably like, gee, if you come to my house, you're going to be made unclean. And Jesus is probably like, I just add that to the list. I just touched a leper, right? So I'm already, I'm already on that list, um, but notice, that the, notice what the centurion believes about Jesus. He believes Jesus has power to heal his soldier without going to his house. Also notice the centurion's self-reflection in light of Jesus. He considers himself what? Unworthy. I'm, I'm, un, I'm unworthy to have you come to my house. Think about that statement. A Roman general saying he is unworthy to have what is perceived as a blue-collar Jewish carpenter to enter his house. That is unheard of, completely backwards. He's acknowledging his own unworthiness, at the same time acknowledging the power of Jesus. And remember, in that culture, who had the power in the culture? Rome. Remember who this guy is? A Roman general, centurion, a leader, who knows all about power. He knows all about authority. He uses it every single day. He knows that anyone in authority can issue orders knowing that what he says will be done even though he himself is not present at the scene of the events. The centurion is saying that while he himself, catch this now, while he himself has delegated a, a power or authority from Rome, Jesus has a delegated power from God himself. He, he is, he, his faith is not just that Jesus had power to heal from a distance. In essence, what this guy is saying, he acknowledges Jesus is God himself. I mean, this is, this is incredible. Now, now, some of you may read this, and you may have read the rest of the story, Okay? Keep in mind, again, when you're reading, stop, understand what they know, okay? They don't know all the stuff that maybe you know. 
If you've read the rest of Jesus' story, you will know that there are times where Jesus can speak a word and things happen. I mean, you can go to Genesis 1 and read Jesus, God speaks, it happens, right? Um, that, that, that's the kind of authority that he has. This guy has probably never read a Bible in his life, right? Matthew 9 through 28 has not been written yet. The events have not yet happened. There has been no example of Jesus healing from a distance yet. Hasn't happened. So this centurion's faith is unusually strong. That's why Jesus says in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Do you understand, you understand why he marveled now? This guy's acknowledging it's God. He's acknowledging him to do things that he has not even done yet. Um, he, and he's not even supposed to be doing these things. He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I mean, his eyes just light up. Jesus is 100% God. He's 100% man, and he marvels as a man. I mean, this is crazy coming from Roman Gentile. It is greater faith, Jesus says, basically, I've seen, this is greater faith than I've seen from you guys who've memorized the entire Bible. I bet you they didn't take that too well. <laughs> I mean, you, you can bet they, they didn't like this. The religious leaders were supposed to be the, they were supposed to be the cream of the crop, right? The CEOs of the Bible, the, the captains of Team God. I mean, they were supposed to be the guys who knew it all good. They were at the top. And Jesus, again, says opposite. He rebels because he refused to give them that title. They got the entire mission of God backwards. They got the entire Bible backwards, they saw the Bible, this whole book, as being about them and what they need to do for God instead of being about Jesus and what he was going to do for them. Did you hear me on that one? I've said this many times, but that is profoundly different understanding of the Bible. That means you get it or you don't get it. It's not about you and what you need to do for God. You look, okay, I got all these commands. Okay, I got to do that. And oh, here's this guy. He kind of, I got to live like this guy. And da, da, da. It's not what it's about. It's not about you and what you need to do for God. It is all about Jesus and what he came to do for you. So that every law that's there is meant to point to him who fulfilled it. Every character that does anything good is meant to point to Jesus, who's the ultimate person of that character, right? It's all about him. It's why the whole, we always, you ever wonder here, if you've been here long enough, you go like, why do we always talk about Jesus? Like, why does it always come back to the gospel? Because that's the point, okay? That's the point. So I love this. So, so here we have this guy. So he's, he's, he tells him that no one had such faith in, in Israel. Verse 11 uh, and this is, I mean, this is tough words here. Listen to this. Many, Jesus says, will come from east and west. Recline at table with who? Abraham. Remember Father Abraham had many sons? Many sons had Father Abraham, right? I am one of them, so are you. All that stuff, right? I remember that. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, they're the, they're the, they're the big guys, right? They're the big guys. In the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, who is that? Sons of the kingdom. I mean, I almost could put that in parentheses because this is almost like a sons of the kingdom, ha-ha kind of thing. Sons of the kingdom would be those who are the religious people of the day, those who felt that they were doing good deeds for God, those who end up, by the way, killing Jesus. Those people, he says, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, that's some hard stuff. I'm surprised that Jesus doesn't die right here. Like after saying that, because they get it. They know what he's saying. When they, he said sons of the kingdom, they knew they called themselves that, okay? So when he says sons of the kingdom, they knew exactly who he was talking to. And he says here that, that east from the west is referred to people from all over the globe, all over history, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They're going to be there with them. That's, that's crazy, you mean to tell me that the, the, the passport into the presence of God in eternity is not membership of any one nation? 
It's not adherence to any particular political party. It's not birth into a certain religious family, but based solely on faith in the person and work of Jesus. Yeah, that's what he's saying. <laughs> that's what he's saying. I mean, you can feel the blood boiling in the crowd. How dare you? How dare you say that we're going to welcome these? I mean, imagine that you're, we're going to welcome these people to the table. Psh, they're not coming to our table. They're going to be our servants if they actually make it here. And Jesus goes, oh, actually, they are going to be at the table. And guess what? You're not going to be at the table. Matter of fact, you're not even going to be there. You're going to be in hell. <laughs> I mean, this is strong language. I mean, this is, this is the essence of, of authority that Jesus said. My friends, eternity is based on what you do with Jesus, not what you do in keeping them a list of rules. If you reject him and don't want him, the essence of hell is separation from God forever. And it's just like C.S. Lewis said, it's just God saying, okay, you want you forever? Here, you can have you forever without me. It's isolation, separation from God for all eternity. That's why Lewis called, it, called hell the greatest monument to human freedom. I want to be free from God. Okay, here you go. Eternity apart from me. Look at verse 13. Centurion said, uh, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you've believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus now turns back away from the crowds to the centurion. He invites him to return home and gives him assurance that his soldier will be healed when he arrives. Again, Jesus is not making friends here. He is rebelling against the religious people of the day. He has demonstrated unprecedented power and authority both with his actions and his words. But here is the, probably the most rebellious thing of all, the most thing that did not fit at all is that Jesus not only was personal and powerful, but I'm gonna call it the word penetrable. Let me explain that. Look, look here, verse, verse three. He uses his power in a very unique way. Sorry, uh, point three, Jesus is penetrable. And when I use that word penetrable, I'm talking about someone who is able to be defeated, susceptible, vulnerable, we can call breakable, Okay. Now, that sounds completely opposite of what we think of someone with miraculous powers. In our context today, someone with miraculous powers is labeled a what? I mean, you, you watch the shows, right? Marvel comics, right? They're the superheroes. That's what we think of. And sometimes you can maybe think Jesus kind of fits that category, but he's completely different. Right? This is the opposite of what a, a superhero is supposed to use our power for. When we see these miracles Jesus is doing, we can't help but think in our modern context of superheroes. But superheroes like Superman, use their miraculous powers for what? To defeat the enemy. Use power to defeat them. To guard themselves, to conquer, to be impenetrable, right? To be able to put up a force field, as it were, to, like Captain America's shield, right? To, to protect themselves. That's what they use their power for. And yet Jesus used his power to be made vulnerable, to be made penetrable, to be defeated. He literally, as it were, drops the force field. He's like, it's like he consumed kryptonite on purpose as a superhero. It's kind of the idea. So Jesus' real power, guys, is found in his willingness to give it up. Jesus didn't become man to show off his power. Otherwise, again, he could have done greater miracles than that. So I told you last time, it, they were restorative in nature. He made eyes see again, legs walk again, minds at peace again. He was putting things back to the way they were originally supposed to be, but also showing like a, almost like a preview of the future on the new earth when all these things will be gone away. And notice how vulnerable he made himself. He reached the dreaded leper who was enslaved to his disease. He served uh, the despised Roman general commander. And then we see in our text, he touches a marginalized woman, down in verse 14. A marginalized woman 
who was a fisherman's mother-in-law, again, outcast of society, and we see no reference to a husband, which most likely means she was a widow. <laughs> this is like, again, another part of society that, weren't, that you weren't supposed to give the time of day to according to the culture. Again, this is, uh, look at verse 14. Peter, uh, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Again, no request is made. No way, Peter's not like, hey, can you, uh, can you help me out here? She's not feeling good. Doesn't say that. Jesus by himself goes over and he touches her hand. The fever left her and she rose and began to serve. Again, this is a clear sign of the overall mission of rebellious King Jesus. <laughs> he, came, he came not for those who were well, he'll say this, but for those who were what? Sick. I've told you this before too, the typical Jewish prayer, male Jewish prayer in the morning, they would get up in the morning and they would pray, quote, I thank you, God, that I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Do you realize in this text that's exactly who Jesus reached? <laughs> I mean, that's why I keep calling you, you understand what I mean by rebellious? Like, I mean, he's completely countercultural to what they expected him to be. <laughs> he would walk around and touch suffering. He would reverse the power of sin in individual lives through healing. He would, and all of it would point to what he would ultimately do, which is to go die for our sin in order to remove not just the barrier between us and God, but to restore ultimately the future, return the world back to what it was originally designed to be. This is why up in verse 11, Jesus talks about feasting at the table, right? Feasting. So when he feeds the hungry, he points to the time when the world will know no hunger. When he heals the sick, he points to the time when the world will know no sickness. And when he raises the dead, he points to a time when the world will know no death. So his miracles weren't suspensions of natural laws. They were actually a restoration of the natural ones. When, would sin mess it all up? <laughs> Understand that Jesus is, not, is no more happy with the way things are than we are. He doesn't like it any more than us, which is why he's walking around healing people from the effects of sin. Remember Lazarus, the guy, he died and Jesus, you know, rose and came back from the dead? The Lazarus story, John, Gospel of John. If you remember that story, this guy dies, he's a friend, people are really sad, people are upset. And the language in that text, the language, there's two different Greek words for crying, okay, tears. And it, it, you maybe know this is like one of those random Bible facts, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. That word wept is not just sad tears, it's angry tears. Jesus was mad. Not at the people, he was mad at death. He was mad at the effects that death not only had on Lazarus, but the effects of his family who were all crying and mourning. He is upset. Jesus is not happy with sin. He's not happy with the effects of sin. He is so upset at it and so mad at it that he actually came down himself to deal with it. Do you understand that? That's how serious he takes it. It's not something he's going to sweep under the cosmic rug of the universe and be like, ah, sin's no big deal. That's all right, no big deal. no. He dies for it, right? He took, that, he, he took all of his strength and his gifting and his breath to, to, to heal us in that way, to come, come for us. He bore our sins so that he could come back and kill sin without killing us in the process. He saved us by becoming weak so that we could become strong by his weakness. And that strength, that gifting, that breath that we have is to be used to follow Jesus going against the culture, a culture that says, me first, my rights, my way, we are to use our strength, our gifting, our breath to seek to serve rather than to be served. We should use all that we have to make Jesus known in word and deed. That's the point. I want you to consider, as we go to communion, um, we started this back last week, and this is our new version of this, okay? So just don't pack your stuff up. Just listen to me for a moment, okay? 
you got little cups in front of you. If you're a follower of Christ, there's a little cup there. It's got bread and juice in it. So we go to communion. We take time in our church, if you're new with us, to kind of pause, be quiet, reflect on what we just read, reflect on what God just spoke to us about through his word. And then we respond back to God. It gives you an opportunity to respond. Okay? And I want you to consider this verse, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. He who conceals will not prosper. He who confesses will find mercy. God has an open invitation to you, wherever you are today. If you're a follower of Christ and you read this and you realize the story, you go like, I am not following Jesus like this. I don't see people the way Jesus sees people. I don't treat people the way Jesus treats people. Matter of fact, I don't even like people. I hate people, right? If that's you, it's your opportunity to obtain mercy. Don't conceal that. Don't hide it. Be honest with God about that. I told you, God longs for what lies in the depths of your soul. Whatever's in there, tell him. He already knows it anyway, right? Tell him. But people will pray for you. We'll be in the back to pray for you if you'd like to come back and pray. And so if you're a follower of Christ, it's an opportunity to take the time to reflect. There's the bread and juice there. It's to do in remembrance of Jesus. The, his body broken for us like that bread. And the juice is like this blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him to remember the healing gospel that we, we've received mercy through the cross as Christians. We're not trying to obtain grace through this. We have received grace from Jesus. But we are here to be honest and transparent and to confess to God. If you don't know Jesus is not for you, this is all weird to you, and you read this about Jesus, you go like, that's pretty amazing, but I cannot live like that. That's, that's true. None of us can, okay? That's the point. We read that and go like, yeah, I, I can't live like that. That's why Jesus came to transform us, to save us from our sin, to transform us, go to a cross, die, rise again. And so if that's a question for you, we'd love to answer questions you may have about him. Um, but I'm going to do, I'm going to pray, and then we'll take some quiet time here. Father, thank you for um, this witness we have of the life of Christ. I love so much that this stuff is recorded. We're just so thankful that we get to read this, and we have the freedom to read this. And God, it's powerful because it speaks volumes to how different uh, it goes against the grain of humanity. Our humanity, our sinful nature, wants to go for what is mine. That this is my world and other people just kind of live in it. We seek to be served, not serve. And so God, as we read the story, we're confronted with the reality of a God that, praise God, didn't live that way, <laughs> who did the opposite, who came and suffered and bled and died for us to bring us to yourself so, and then turn us around to send us out to live the way that you have served us, to serve the way you've served us, to speak as you have spoken to us. I pray, God, you would transform our hearts to be like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.